I can still recall. It's indelibly printed in my mind. Maybe because of the amazing thought that, and my dad gave me the keys to a 1971 GMC Hornet. And it was green. <laughs> it really was. I got the keys. One of the church members uh, saw me uh, being just a little too uh, excited with that uh, straight in line six. Uh, boy, it had good low-end power. I pulled out of a parking lot. And, well, anyway, I, uh, that was not the only thing burning later. I read this week about a very unique key that uh, if you are a Ferrari owner, I'm sure several in here will be interested in this. If you are a Ferrari owner, this particular key is coated with over a thousand very tiny but flawless diamonds. Only can imagine what that looked like, that little Ferrari uh, symbol on there. And then if that isn't luxurious enough, uh, you can further personalize it with gold plating. For your Ferrari, of course. Only $22,000 for the key. That's amazing, isn't it? Well, this morning, I'm going to give you the key to the entire book of Revelation. And in one verse, God lays out for us an amazing key in and of itself that gives us a scope of the entire book of Revelation. And that's what we're doing. The thought was that over the course of time, we would uh, preach an ongoing series called The Revelation Revealed. And uh, we will perhaps uh, finish uh, chapter one today, and uh, we'll uh, come back at it another time. In verse uh, 19 of chapter one, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. In those, at one verse, we are given an outline of the book of Revelation, and we'll go through that in just a moment. Would you join with me, and let's ask God's blessing on this blessing book. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you, Father, oh God, for the beautiful warm hugs and handshakes sweet smiles, the beautiful greetings. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to join together with fellow saints singing. Lord, we love you. Thank you for these who are praising you. And Lord, I praise you in the great congregation. Lord, to you be all the glory. Give us your mind, Holy Spirit. Keep away any distraction, Lord, that would slip into our mind, both for speaker and hearer. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go to the book of Revelation, if you would, please. Verse number three of chapter one. Now, all of God's Word is wonderful. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, it is a wonderful, it is an amazing book. But there is one book in Scripture that God says has a special blessing attached to it. Look at verse three. Let's read it. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, 
and though and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Notice that little phrase, blessed is he. Now I didn't read that and read the words fanatical is he. There are some people who start thinking about the Revelation, book of Revelation and talking about it and Sure enough, relatives or friends or co-workers will say he's just a fanatic, always talking about the coming of Christ or talking about this or that. But the Bible very clearly says, blessed, a special blessing if we will read and keep the book of Revelation. It is a very unique book. Years ago, both as an older teenager and then in college, I took a course on, back then it was called speed reading. The idea was that there was a way to be able to uh, get faster through printed material. And we didn't have all the condensed books or didn't have the internet and all the little sound bites that we have now. And so if you wanted to get information, you had to go through the entire book. In that course, they taught us that uh, you never just pick up a book and start reading. You look at the title. And then you turn it over and look at the back of the book. And then you open it up and you look at the inside. Because oftentimes on the inside flap or somewhere, they will give you an outline of the book. They will give you the high points. So you're, you get the big name on the back. You're getting to find out what the author's thinking. And then you see some bullet points. Then you look through the table of contents. Then you look at the introduction. Because oftentimes the introduction is just a microcosm of the entire book. Then after you've done that, then you just take your finger and you run it. You don't go all the way to the end. You just kind of run your finger through the middle of the page. You skip off the edges of the uh, paragraph don't, and train your mind. Overlook the these and the A's. These are interesting to me, but when I do my notes to this day, I don't put A and the and is and things like that. I just take the high points. And so then you read through it, and then after you've speed read it once, you go through, you, your finger makes you, gives you the pace, you know, you just kind of go like that, turn it over, and just, that's about how fast you do it, like that, and you just kind of follow your finger. Then after you do that, then you take your time, and you read through it more thoroughly. And I'm telling you what, it is amazing how much better and how much more comprehensive your ability to understand it is. It's interesting when you take a thought like that and you apply it to what we're doing here. It's almost as though God did the same thing. God gave us a microcosm. It's the inside flap, as you were, of this particular book. And it's in, found in verse number 19. He said, I want you to, first of all, write things that you have seen. Now, what had John just seen? Remember this aged, beloved pastor who uh, had so long served the Lord, had personally been with Christ. This was the one who leaned on Jesus, who had been so close to him, formerly had been a son of thunder, uh, was uh, his family name. He was quite a rounder, but the Spirit of God just changed his entire nature. And now this same beloved John, who had been put on an isle called Patmos there in Greece, he now is given this amazing vision. He had seen Jesus. He had seen him as he walked the streets of Jerusalem. He had seen him as he touched those that were blind and those that were deaf. But now he sees him in a different sense. He sees his glory. And so uh, we see the glory of God. Then the things which are. 
God gives him a vision of the churches. And all of a sudden, he begins to get it. There's a church at Philadelphia and Thyatira and Pergamos and Sardis. And he begins to go through these and he gets it. He sees the strengths and he sees the weaknesses that are found in the New Testament church. And it's the church. It's the church. And throughout uh, chapters 2 and 3, we see that word coming up so often. And then he said very clearly, then after you've seen the glory of the Lord and you've seen the goodness of the Lord, now let's talk about the government of God coming down upon us. And he talks about future events. And so let's go through that outline together, if you would, either this morning. We are going to go through chapter 1, and then very quickly we're going to go through chapters 2 and 3, and then we're going to hit some high points in the things which are coming. And so first of all, things which are past, God's glory. Basically, that's chapter 1. And so the first point is chapter 1. Point number 2, we'll be covering chapters 2 and 3. And in chapters, and in the third point this morning, we'll be covering uh, chapters 4 through 22. Let's go to verse 12, if you would, please, of chapter 1. Notice he turns and he sees a voice that spoke with me. Interesting phrase, isn't it? He turned to see the voice. <laughs> God, Jesus was there speaking to him. Verse 16, and his countenance was as the sun that shineth. In, the sun, in its strength. He is full of glory. Verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And by the way, when God says amen, we ought to say amen. That means so be it. That means uh, I agree. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Aren't you glad that Jesus has the keys of hell and death? Well, I'm glad some Democrat doesn't have the keys, and I'm glad that some Republican doesn't have the keys. I'm glad that Jesus has the keys to our future. He had seen Jesus as Savior, and now in His glory, He sees Him as sovereign. He had seen Jesus as justifier, and now He sees Him as judge, truly an unveiling of Jesus Christ. If you have a King James uh, Bible, uh, if you have a written uh, physical copy in your hand, uh, many of them will, if you look at the superscription at the beginning, it will say this, the uh, revelation of St. John the Divine. Nothing wrong with that, of course, because it was John who got that vision. But it, in all accuracy, it is actually the apocalypse, or the apocalypsis, the Greek word, of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is about the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And it is just that. And so in chapter 1, we're seeing Jesus more than just as a suffering, humble Christ child, but now as King of kings and Lord of lords. Some people have wondered why Jesus didn't come in His glory in His first coming. Why did He appear in such a nondescript way? Well, I think there's a very good reason for that. He came in humility because if He had not done so, we would have not followed Him because of His inwardly beautiful nature, but rather we would have been afraid not to follow Him because of His outward glory. And that's why the prophet Isaiah said, when we see Him, there's actually no form, nor comeliness, nor beauty that we should desire Him. 
Outwardly, in fact, he was very humble and nondescript person. And yet all of the glory of God was in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why when you have a right heart, you will respond to him because it's a heart of faith. I don't desire Jesus because he was some handsome guy or because he was uh, some, you know, great uh, rich person or some wonderful smart person. I respond to Jesus by faith with my heart that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, even though I see him in his humility. It's kind of like a prince, it was said, of past years, a European prince who so much wanted the love of a lady, but he wanted the love of a beautiful woman with a good heart that loved him for just who he was, not for his position, not for the riches that he might be able to give her. And so in order to be able to find one like that, he dressed himself in just very plain clothes. He didn't have all the regalia around him and all the entourage. He just went out by himself. And he went out into the community, and there he found the love of his life. And then later told her he was an heir to the throne. I think Jesus really in one sense did that for us. If he had come in his glory the first time, we would have just been enamored. But he came in humility so that those who have good hearts, those who have faith-filled hearts, they love him just for who he is, not for what he can do for them. Things which are past. Now John sees him in his glory though and how amazing it is. It was an amazing picture to him. He was like, wow, I've always seen you as humble, but now I see you in glory. And so that's chapter one. Now we come to chapters two and three, things which are present, God's goodness. Look what it says in Revelation chapter one and verse 19, and the things which are, and things which are. Now in chapters two and three, we find seven messages to seven churches. Thank God for the church of Jesus Christ. Thank God for His goodness and His kindness to give us churches as the center of our family, the center of our lives. I will tell you, if you are not in a local New Testament Bible-believing, Christ-centered church you are not in the center of God's will. It's just as simple as that because this is the church age. If we had lived in a different era, maybe a different situation, but in this age, God is working in and through His church, and it is a blessed thing. Now, when you look at the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, it's very clear that the concept is to seven churches. Now, there are many numbers in the book of Revelation, and it's very clear as you read through it that numbers mean something. And that's because God built numbers and mathematics into the universe. One of the most delightful things, if you can understand them, is a wonderful Christian mathematician and scientist. They will take the stars and the astronomy. They will take... Uh, all the different math principles, and they will weave the Scripture into it in a way that is absolutely unbelievable. You see, the truth is God put math and numbers into our lives. 
Our bodies run on certain rhythms. There are certain numbers that are associated with our bodies. And so when people discover these math laws, they're actually not discovering it. They're just using what God already put into place. And so numbers and math are created by God. Now, you may not be very good at math or may not like math. You might be like the little boy who was trying to get into his math lesson. He just simply could not add for the life of him. And so his teacher, trying to help him understand, said, well, how about this way? If I had $3 in one pocket and I had $4 in another pocket, what would you have? And he said, I'd have on somebody else's pants. <laughs> you may be like that little fellow. You might say, you know what? I'm not really big into math. I'm not really into numbers. But I will tell you this. If you will, just for a moment, bear with me, you'll see some amazing things that God has done. Tremendous spiritual symbolism in some numbers. There are many numbers that mean things in Scripture. Sometimes the study of numbers in Scripture is called numerology. Don't uh, go off into that too much, especially when someone's not into a good, solid Bible-believing church. But it is a fact that God uses numbers. The number one, for example, is the number of primacy or unity, and therefore it speaks of our God. Oftentimes, we'll talk about one thing or one thing. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And so often, one then means primacy or unity. Number two is a word of confirmation or witness. In the Old Testament, it had to be two witnesses. In John chapter 8 and verse 17, it says, It is written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. Jesus sent out people to by two. The number two is witness. The number three is a divine number. It speaks of the triunity of our God. By the way, that's a, maybe even a better word than trinity, triunity, because our God is one God. He may exist in three persons, but He is one God. And that's why when Jesus said, you are to baptize, He issued to them a Trinitarian formula. He said, I want you to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit because it is a picture of one unified front. Then there is the number six in Scripture. Perhaps it is one of the most interesting numbers. Six is the number of man. Does anybody know what day that man was created on in the seven days of creation? Well, six. He was created on the sixth day. Perhaps the most familiar use of the number six is in Revelation 13, verse 18, where the Bible said that during that day, during the tribulation, people will not be able to eat or conduct business without the mark of the beast. Six, six, six. It's all about man. It's all about man. I'd say we're pretty much getting to the point today where it's all about mankind. I remind you, it is not all about mankind. It is about our wonderful Savior. And that brings us to number seven. It is the most exciting number in all of Scripture. It is the perfect number. It is the number of perfection. 
You find it many times in Scripture, actually, historically. For example, you may remember when Jericho was uh, being invaded by the people of Israel. How many days did uh, Joshua march around Jericho? Seven. And then on the seventh day, what did he do? He marched around it seven times. What was the point of all that? The point was, we're not beating you with our spears. We're not beating you because of our superior forces. Only God is doing this. Seven days, seven times around. Peter knew that the number seven was a perfect number. You remember in Matthew chapter 18, verse 22, when he was talking about forgiveness, he said, how many times should we forgive somebody? And Jesus responded, not, until, not unto thee until seven times. Peter said, seven times? He said, no, 70 times seven. And so throughout Scripture, when somebody does something complete or perfect, it is seven. Now, last week, uh, several asked me about the seven candlesticks. The actual Greek word maybe would be better rendered lampstands than candlesticks because it probably is actually one stand, not seven individual candlesticks. And it's interesting that the symbol for Israel today is a lamp stand. It is a lamp stand that has seven parts to it. On one side, it has three little um, branches. <clears throat> On the right side, it has three little branches. And in the center, it has a higher uh, part of the candlestick, lampstand. Three and three and a single one. If you've ever seen that particular candlestick. It is the symbol of Israel. It's called a menorah. The menorah actually symbolizes what we're speaking about in Scripture. Six, the number of man. Three and three. That's six. That's man. But there is one in the middle. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. And so even in the beautiful uh, lampstand of the menorah, it is a picture that Jesus is still number one. And so when we come to these seven churches, what are we talking about? We're talking about a complete, perfect picture of all the things that God has to say to the church. It's symbolical, but they were literal churches. They weren't just metaphorical churches in Ephesus or whatever. They were really a church in each of those cities. And so let's talk about these churches and just a characteristic of them. We're going through chapters 2 and 3 right now. Ephesus. They drifted from the main thing, which was a heartfelt devotion to the Lord. They had lost their freshness, and sort of like a marriage that uh, after a while, because people quit investing, they kind of lose the, uh, the freshness and the hotness of the marriage. And God said, you better keep your focus, keep your first love. There was another problem in the local church, and that was uh, a sin that he actually mentioned in two different churches, and that was the sin of the Nicolaitans. The word you might have heard, laity, as opposed to the pastoral staff, but laity, meaning just the people. Nico, meaning victory, or like the Greek word, Nike. Nicolaity actually was a group of people who were conquering the laity, or the sheep. It was where sheep were following sheep. There was a Big, uh, there was a big movement among the sheep. They said, uh, we're not going to follow a shepherd. We're going to follow the sheep. And I will tell you, folks, 
when people relegate the pastor to be just a hired hand and the sheep start following sheep, we got big trouble. Sheep need a shepherd. And then the book of Smyrna, excuse me, the uh, church of Smyrna. The church of Smyrna reached, uh, received absolutely no criticism from the Lord. And yet still, there was a danger for this church because of discouragement. It was a very poor and suffering church, and God's word to them was never lose heart. And today, we have the Smyrna church all over the world. We find precious saints of God in Egypt and in African nations and all over, people that really don't have much. And God is saying to them, don't lose heart, even here in America, I'm sure. And then the church at Pergamos. This church was uh, especially had issues because there were many in that church who held to the antinomian philosophy. Antinomian is the no law concept. That is that anything goes in the church. Sometimes they mislabel it as grace, saying it's, we live by grace. It is simply nothing more than convenient Christianity. It's easy to profess Christ when you can do everything and sin like everybody else. Who couldn't be a Christian with that kind of concept? They called it the doctrine of Balaam here in the book of Revelation because some in the church had the idea, like Balaam in the Old Testament, that you can be married to the world and still serve God. That was exactly the problem with Balaam. He was paid to curse the people of God, and he did it by making them a worldly group. Then there is the church Thyatira. And let me just remind you about worldliness. Worldliness is not a style. It's an attitude. It's an attitude of the heart. Can't say, oh, that's worldly. No. Worldliness is an attitude of the heart. Some people can dress pretty fancy and very conservative, yet they have a worldly heart. Thyatira, a woman out of place. Here were women who were taking a very dominant role in the church and were out of order. In fact, uh, there was one particular lady that uh, the Holy Spirit called Jezebel. She was a Jezebel because her doctrine was leading people into sin and destroying families. The answer was that the church needed to be go back to God's order. And then there was the Sardis church. This was the has-beens. Great name in the past, but no ministry today. They were dying. But I tell you, thank God, if, we'll revi- if we will pray for revival, any church can stay hot and alive for God. The Philadelphian church, known for its brotherly love, but unfortunately, it was also the place of Satan's synagogue. Religious, they were a synagogue. But they had a demonic, oppressive spirit about them. I'll tell you one thing. I've met lots of religious people, even in churches, who have a demonic spirit about them. They substitute their religion for relationship, and it is nothing but the devil's playground. Then there is the church of Laodicea. They had grown lukewarm. They were, from a material standpoint, very rich. But spiritually, they were poor. They were paupers. I mentioned to a guy the other day where I saw a uh, train, and I said, there are probably some hobos over there. That guy laughed. He said, you've just told your age. He said, they don't call them hobos anymore. They're called homeless now. I said, well, whatever. Um, I think they're probably still hobos. Go out and get a job, man. But anyway, 
Um, now in chapters two and three, we find the word over and over again, church, 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 church. You see it's over and over again, church. By the way, I love to point out Revelation chapter one, verse 20. It talks about the stars of the church. You know who those are, right? That's the pastor, the angel of the church. It says, the angel of each church. That word means messenger. I just remind you, I'm the angel around here. But anyway, um, no, my wife is the angel, actually. But, uh, <coughs> and so in chapters 2 and 3, we see the word church, church, church. And then something very dramatic happens. In chapter 4, you never see the word church listed again. Never. I mean, you see it over and over again, church, 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 and then boom, not even one time. Folks, we are living in the days of the church. It is God's superpower, the New Testament church, much more powerful than little rocket man's ICBM. Amen. We are full of, we are God's superpower. All right. Things which are past, things which are present. And then point number three, things which are predicted, God's government. God was showing his glory in chapter one. God was showing his goodness in chapters two and three. Now he's showing his government. The third division is by far the largest, and it is primarily a book of prediction. While many of these things are already operating, and to some degree they were operating back in John's day, remember in 1 John, uh, he said, the spirit of Antichrist has already worked. That was 2,000 years ago. Well, if, it, if Antichrist was working 2,000 years ago, he's definitely working today. Now, sometimes when I hear about a predict events or certain signs of the times, especially when I talk about Israel, I get confused. And they all run together. And it's, I don't think anybody can sort it all out. That's why they have seminars on prophecy. They have books on prophecy. They have magazines on prophecy. They have shows on prophecy. So let me this morning in very broad paint strokes, we're going to take and we're going to paint a picture. And for those of you who are, you are very, uh, no theology, you've uh, studied eschatology. This might be a little bit of uh, redundant, but I think in it, all of us will get something. Let's talk about the six major events of prophecy. There are hundreds of things we could talk about. But if you were to look at the mountains over here, you were to say, okay, there's Mount Whitney and there's Mount whatever. And, but if you were to pick out the big mountains, and well, these are the Mount Whitney's, these are the Mount McKinley's, these are the Mount Everest of prophecy. First of all, the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. That is the time we are living in. Notice what it says in verse number one of chapter four. After this, after this. Now, if you have a little physical Bible and you write things, if you would like a, a more accurate translation or maybe an additional translation, I mean, I would say, after this means after these things. After these things. What things? Well, the things we just talked about in chapter one. After these things, and in chapters 2 and 3, after the church, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was at the sound of a trumpet. First Corinthians chapter 15 says, a trumpet will sound. 
with me, which said, come up hither. First Thessalonians chapter four says, a shout, and I will show thee the things which must come hereafter. The rapture of the church. Folks, the rapture may happen before we even finish this sermon. Jesus may come. He's going to give a shout. We're going to hear a trumpet. One of these days, we're going to hear a trumpet. We're going to think, oh, there's Brother Gary, there's Brother Rusty blowing again. And we're going to find out, no, that's Gabriel. Hallelujah. Gabriel never makes a mistake. I'm not saying anything about those guys because I make too many mistakes preaching for sure. And you would never want to hear me play a trumpet, I'll guarantee it. One thing about playing a trumpet, though, when you make a mistake, you can't go back, amen? <laughs> you just keep on going. Jesus is coming. He's going to say, come up. Hallelujah for the rapture. I ran across a news clip recently out of Austin, Texas. Gotta love those Texans. It was about a man who suffered a heart attack. True story, suffered a heart attack when his co-workers at a plastic factory all pretended they had been raptured. Well, here's how it happened. They laid all their work outfits on a chair, their shoes down at the base of the chair. They hid in the supply room, and when Herbert came back from the restroom, he thought the rapture had occurred. And then a janitor, an outspoken Muslim, pretended to have witnessed everybody disappear, and he, they thought they, they, they just had gone. Herbert fell to the ground, clutching his heart, screaming, what did I do wrong, Lord? <laughs> Actually had a heart uh, problem, and they took him to the hospital. And uh, as a result of that, uh, they actually ended up doing some uh, heart procedure on him, bypass surgery. And uh, the people came out of the room when they, everything came out. They were so ashamed of themselves. We didn't mean to scare him. He just was always talking about the Jesus coming again. We didn't mean to scare the guy. They asked uh, the wife later after how he's doing. He said, oh, he's doing great, recovering good. He said, he's in his Bible like never before. <laughs> Don't you be scaring me now. <laughs> Come here with some Sunday, everybody, you know, just all, the, all your clothes are just laying there. <laughs> What's going on here? It's not right. It's not right at all. Number two, the great tribulation. After the rapture comes, the day of tribulation, the great day of his wrath has come. Who should be able to stand. This is when hell has a heyday. The devil has his millennium. The Antichrist is going to rule roughshod. The Antichrist is going to come and he is going to say peace and peace to everybody and peace and he's going to do all and everybody's just going to follow him. And then demons are going to be poured out on this world because the Holy Spirit and God's people have left, and oh my goodness, all hell is going to break loose. This is when, as the Bible Scripture talks about the four horses of the apocalypse, disease is going to just run rampant, wars every part of the globe, famine and death, the four horses. It will get so bad, it will culminate in a great war, as we'll see in a moment, but that war, the Bible says... People, maybe they just explode. I don't know what happens. But it says that for 180 miles in the center of Israel, down the center of the valley, 
The blood will be so high, it will be up to the bridle of a horse. You talk about blood. You talk about disease. You talk about death and war. Unbelievable. Then number three, the third, is the battle of Armageddon. After the Great Tribulation, the most terrible human event in all of history, the battle of Armageddon. And he gathered them together into a place in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. What happens? The Bible says unclean spirits come out of a river, the river Euphrates, which today is Iran and Iraq. Antichrist then, along with these unclean spirits, gathers people from all over the world to the plains of Megiddo, called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. It is a mountain which also has valleys all around it. And here the Antichrist will put himself as the ruler of the world, a time of unbelievable, unmentionable horror. It will be a time when Israel is going to be beat down and destroyed. It's going to be terrible. And then just when it looks like that Israel's gone, just when it looks like that Satan's Superman, old 666, has got them all down, then from the heavens comes 777. The Bible says he's going to come again, and he's going to come and speak a word. This particular valley is known for great wars over the course of human history. In fact, Napoleon said that it was the world's greatest natural battlefield. The Bible says contingents from every part of the globe, from the north, Russia, from the east, China, and India, and the Asian nations, from the south, Sudan, and all the African nations, they're going to come, and they're going to converge on Israel. And then the Bible says, as it says in Jude chapter 1 and verse 14, that Jesus will come. And all those that have been saved by his grace, all the church that have been raptured from all from Adam all the way through to the time of the rapture, first he comes for his saints, now he comes with his saints. And the Bible says that he's going to come at that moment there in the valley of Megiddo. Every army is there. They have their atom bombs. They have their lasers, they have their drones, they have their robots, they have their microwave, uh, they have all kinds of things. I mean, people are going to be exploding and it's just going to be this, people are going to be melting from all the nuclear stuff that goes on. Their tanks, their jets, you name it, every known weapon is going to be there. There's going to be 200 at least million, there's tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people who will have come to Israel. It's going to come. One of these days, the powder keg is going to blow. And then the Bible says that Jesus is going to come with a sword in his mouth, and he's going to mention just a word. He's going to look at everybody. He's just going to say, drop dead. And they're all going to, just like that. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 11, all Israel will be saved. It will be the greatest revival. Every person who believes in Christ will be saved. And at that moment, and all the rest, of course, will have died already. And that word, isn't it interesting that everything that God has ever done, he did with his word. He spoke the world into existence, and he will speak it out of existence. Number four, we have the thousand-year reign. After that, Jesus now reigns for a thousand years. We have no reason to deny and to doubt that that's literal. 
But a thousand years on this earth, yep, we're going to come right back here. Now I'm going to have a glorified body. I'm going to be floating between here and the new Jerusalem. But this building perhaps will be here. Maybe it won't be. I'm not sure. Because there's going to be a war. I mean, it's going to be a great. But I know one thing. If they, people, if they come to this building, and maybe it's partially br broken down, they're going to find Bibles. Because we have hundreds of Bibles in the walls of this building. We put them in before we put up the sheetrock. We call them rapture Bibles. And they're going to, those sheetrock comes off the walls and some of those old steel girders are hanging down. But I'll tell you one thing, the word of God never loses its power. It'll be here for a thousand years. Just think, you'll be able to come back to your house that you lived in back then. You're going to be able to come in and out of it because you have this new body. And uh, you're going to check on people, make sure they're reading their Bible. You're going to check on folks, make sure they're doing good. And it's going to be a time of great wealth and There'll be no wars, and it's just all over the world. It's just un, uh, uninterrupted prosperity, agriculturally. And, I mean, it's just going to be amazing. And people, the, the population of the world is going to soar. There's going to be billions and billions of people, and it's just going to be an amazing time. There's going to be preaching and singing, and the will of God is going to be done on earth finally. Hallelujah. And yet, at the end of that... The Bible says that Satan is going to be bound and put in the bottomless pit at the beginning of this thousand years. And then while he's in uh, the bottomless pit for a thousand years, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6, on such a second path have no power, but they shall be priests of God in Christ and reign with him a thousand years. During this time, Satan is bound. This is all those wonderful scriptures, so many of them in the Prophetical books like Isaiah 2 and verse 4, the sword, they'll beat their sword into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. The Bible says, neither shall they learn war anymore. What a day that will be. I mean to tell you, no disease, no critters, no pest, no pest control in the millennium. Amen. For some of you work in pest control. Number five, the final judgment. After the thousand year reign of Jesus will come the final judgment. Of course, there's other things I'm skipping over here, but in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Today, if an unsaved man dies, he goes to Hades. He doesn't actually go to the lake of fire right now. People talk about the lake of fire. Well, true. If a person dies right now, an unsaved person dies, they actually don't go to the lake of fire right now. They go to a place called Hades. In Luke chapter 16, verse 23, it says, And in Hades, hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. It's still a place of torment, but actually it is a place uh, for the uh, unsaved dead. There's a portion of that place, which is paradise, which is for the saved dead. Revelation chapter 20, verse 13, And death and Hades were delivered up the dead which were in them. Death has the body, and Hades has the soul. The grave gives up the body. Hades gives up the spirit. They are judged before the great white throne. They are judged from the scripture. A man's life will be judged. Sometimes people say, well, why doesn't God judge him right now? Why doesn't God just take these bad people that are out there doing things and destroying lives? Why doesn't God just cast them into hell right now? I don't know, frankly. But let me give you a thought about that. 
I know sometimes people think, well, you know, they do bad and it hurts somebody, it doesn't hurt anybody else. Well, you know, that's the thing about our actions. They often have long-lasting people they hurt. Recently, I heard about one of America's uh, most uh, successful musicians, a man by the name of Jay-Z. He's a hip-hop star, and a few months ago, he blasted traditional values. He said these words. He said that he is part of a smart people club who worships the true Lord, Satan. He's a billionaire, and he claimed God created Lucifer to be a bearer of truth in life. Here's the words he said. He said, Jesus never existed. He said, it's a tool created by smart people to control dumb people. And then he looked at the crowd and he says, y'all being played. Y'all being played. Did you know what Jay-Z refers to himself as? Jehovah, J-A-Y-H-O-V-A. When you go to one of his conference people, or one of his concerts, people yell out, Hova, Hova, Hova. And they hold up little satanic symbols. They feel like he is this satanic creation of God. Now, my dear friend, I hope J.C. gets saved. I hope he goes to heaven. But I will tell you this. If he doesn't, he will not only pay for his own sins, but he will pay for the sins of generations of people who through years have been destroyed by that wicked doctrine, that wicked words. Why does God wait to the end? Why doesn't God just judge people now? Because the Bible says all the results of their sin isn't in yet. And when the full weight of what those words did and what they did, we say, well, I'm only judged for myself, yes. But that doesn't mean we're not going to give account for all the things we've said and done. That's why it's important to be saved, because we don't know where that end is. Well, number six, the new heavens and the new earth is the final one. And I wish I had more time for this, but the fact is, it is a coming eternal state, the destination of the species. <laughs> Old Darwin talked about the origin of the species. I tell you what, you better be more interested in the destination of the species. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 6, it says, He said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of life freely. And he that overcometh all shall inherit all things. I love that. When Noah went into the ark, <clears throat> when he went into the ark, he came out. He went in a pauper. He came out the richest man in all the world. And that's what the Bible says of us. If you get saved, you might be a pauper here. But the Bible says you will inherit all things. Look at verse 7. But I will be his God, and he shall be my son, but the fearful, and the unbelieving, and the abominable. When you read through this list, you think, man, these are terrible things. Yeah, but the Bible also puts unbelieving right next to whoremongers and murderers. The fact is, you don't have to be a whoremonger or a murderer to die and go to hell if you're just unbelieving. The Bible says it's a burning, it's a fire which burns fire and brimstone. Now, let me give you two last thoughts, beautiful thoughts, and that is the last invitation in the Bible. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17, here it is. Look, it says, the spirit and the bride say, notice what it says, come. This is the last invitation of the Bible, come. And he that heareth say, come, and let him that is thirst say, come. The Bible says, if you're thirsty, just come. 
There's all kinds of talk out there today, or this, this doctrine of extreme Calvinism. They talk about who's the elect, who's not the elect. And I'm going to tell you right now. The Bible right here says, if, you wanna, if you're thirsty, you just come. You don't have to worry about if you're the elect or not. You just come. You come. You come to Jesus. And the Bible says, be the best drink you've ever had. Far better than Dasani. I don't care. Fiji, no matter what it is, it is the best water you've ever had. It is eternal water. The last invitation of the Bible is come. Isn't it great that the last thing God says after this entire big book, he just says come. Come to Jesus. He doesn't make it any more complicated than just come. If you'll come, you'll get saved. And then finally, the last prayer. Look at verse 20. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. He which testify these things saith. Now watch it. Jesus is testifying. Surely I come quickly. And what does John say? John says, even so, Lord, come. Even so, Lord, come. And that ought to be the cry on every person in this church's heart. I'm happy living here in this earth. I'm happy with my life and my family, and I'll give it all I got until the time that Jesus comes. But let me say loud and clear, Jesus, come. Even so, come. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm ready for you to come. Come now. Come today. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our heads are bowed and our eyes.